going to ask you to take out your Bibles tonight and turn to Psalm 103. Psalm 103. Amongst my favorite passages, and particularly Psalms, that I take the most comfort and encouragement from when I get bogged down, particularly by my own faults and my own foul-ups and my own shortcomings and my own weaknesses, is Psalm 103. And I'd like to suggest to you tonight as well, therefore, that whenever you struggle, you struggle to do your best for God, but you still fail miserably. You say the wrong thing or you do the wrong thing, you think the wrong thing, and you disappoint both yourself and God, or if you just sometimes feel flat out unworthy to be called by the noble name of Christ and Christian, then I suggest to you that Psalm 103 might be a good place to plant your thoughts for a few minutes as we're going to do tonight. The first thing we would notice about Psalm 103 is that its author is David. David was certainly a man that was acquainted with what it meant to fail God miserably and to know how unworthy he was, writing, for example, David himself in such places as Psalm 51, such statements as, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me, Psalm 51.3, or hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Another passage that David wrote in Psalm 51, verses 9 through 11, and finally in verse 17 of Psalm 51, he wrote, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. David, the writer of our psalm of focus tonight, Psalm 103, was certainly a man acquainted with his own shortcomings and human failures. He would have agreed very much with the words of the Apostle Paul when Paul wrote in Romans 7 and 8, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. You ever had one of those times you've let God down, you've let yourself down, you've really struggled, tried to do the best, but somehow it just didn't come out right? Paul understood that. Again, he wrote, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, he said, I really want to, but to perform what is good, I do not find. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ. That's Romans chapter 7, verses 18, 24, 25, and Romans 8, 1. So let us look at Psalm 103. As David begins Psalm 103, he lets us know right up front just how vital our all-out, all-in, all-consuming worship of God is in this process. He expresses to us in Psalm 103 and verse 1 what our worship should always consist of. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. 
The word blessed from Psalm 103 in verse 1, or translated blessed, means praise, adore, salute, or bow before. Bless the Lord, O my soul, in Psalm 103 in verse 1, is a phrase that David would use again in the very next verse. And not only would he use it to introduce verse 2, but David would use this phrase as the very last line and sentiment of this divinely inspired psalm as we see in the very last verse, verse 22. It's the same thing the psalmist did in Psalm 104, verses 1 and 35. Bless the Lord, O my soul, at the beginning. Bless the Lord, O my soul, at the end. This is a phrase that totally bookends Psalm 103. And it's only fitting because everything in Psalm 103 tells us why we should bless the Lord with everything that is within us. And so, as we consider that and, and think about that line, bless the Lord, O my soul, our, our teenagers, our youth will certainly remember that as the first line of the song, 10,000 Reasons, that we sing at Green Valley Bible Camp. It's another one of those phrases you want to go, just start out, bless the Lord, O my soul. That's, that's this line. And notice that we are to do that, David says, with all that is within us. It's not just in getting here. But once we're here, we should, we should, as we worship God, worship him with everything that is within us. That's what David says. We should bless him, praise him, salute him, bow before him with everything we've got. Sometimes... We don't pour everything we've got into worshiping God, whether it's our lack of singing or lackluster singing as, as individuals. It's not about the sound of all of us together, but we should pour everything we have into our worship is David's point. Sometimes somebody will say, well, I didn't get anything out of worship. The automatic question needs to be, what'd you put into it? And so David says, do it with everything that is within you. And again, that song, 10,000 Reasons, that we sing at Green Valley, says, sing like never before. It's about pouring everything within you into it. Verse 2 tells us why we should bless the Lord. Because of all of his benefits to us, which David will use the rest of the psalm to elaborate on. Brethren, we must never forget God's blessings and benefits. Because, just as David says here in verse 2, because if we do, forget those blessings and benefits, that is when we will fail to bless him for them and be blessed by him with more of them. James chapter 1, verses 22 to 25. It's, it's this beautiful cycle that, that we see in, in praising the Lord and, and blessing the Lord with everything that is within us and, and not forgetting his benefits. And It's a beautiful cycle. Think of it this way. Worship when we come together to worship God with all that is within us, that is where we come to bless and praise and appreciate him. We, we pray, we worship, we, we sing, we fellowship, we take of communion, we, we listen to a lesson from God's holy word together. And, and as we do that, we are forgetting not all his benefits. Well, the more we worship and forget not all his benefits and are reminded of his benefits, the more we 
want to bless him. And the more we want to bless him, the more we're here for worship, and the more we worship, the more we want to bless him, and the more we want to bless him, the more we worship. It's a beautiful cycle, round and round and round. Verses one and two. Verse three, we are to bless him and not forget his benefits. That is of the one who forgives all your iniquities and heals all your diseases. I'd like to spend hours talking about the one who forgives all your iniquities. Where would you be without the forgiveness of God? Just, just let that roll over you for a minute. And the Bible says here, God forgives all your iniquities. All. I, I don't know what your list looks like. Probably more than one or two on it because you're human. God forgives all your iniquity. We just read in, in, from Romans 8, verse 1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Our God is an awesome God. What, what, a, what a beautiful plan and cycle we have right here in the first few verses of Psalm 103. And of course, it says, and, and heals all your diseases. And if we go down to verse 4, it says that we should not forget this Lord who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. Redeems your life from destruction. What vain and futile and fatal and deadly and worthless pursuits would you be pursuing if you were not a Christian? I don't know that it is necessarily talking about only eternal life here when it says redeems your life from destruction, but stop and think about if you were not a Christian. Think about the world around you and all of the pursuits and all of the, the things that they are involved with that are dead ends. And, and because you're a Christian, your life has been redeemed from that self-destruction that only serving self tends to bring you. Where would we be if we were not Christians? And it's interested in this verse, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. Crowns. When we think of the word crowns, we think of somebody that is bowed down before a superior who is getting a crown that is bestowed upon them by that superior. But while we think of that, and, and that is certainly an apt picture here, this word that is translated crowns, God crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, that word in the Hebrew can also be translated as surrounds just as it is in Psalm 5, 12. Psalm 5, verses 11 and 12, of which read, but let all those who, I'm sorry, but let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let those also who love your name be joyful in you. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous with favor. You will surround him. That's that same word as is translated crowns here. You will surround him as with a shield. And so Psalm 5, verses 11 and 12 talk about that joy that we had ought to have. It talks about rejoicing because we put our trust in God who defends us. It says that God will surround us. Same word as crowns us here. In verse 5, it says that we are not to forget this God who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. 
As I read that here, I am reminded of the Apostle Peter's words in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, where he says, Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. And obviously, God does satisfy our physical mouth with good things. He takes care of our physical needs as he promises, but there's a lot more here talking about how God satisfies us spiritually, as Peter was talking about in 1 Peter 2, 1 through 3, with the spiritual food of his word. And as we consider that, the second part of verse 5, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. <laughs> as we consider that, he's not talking about physical youth there either, as I found out playing ball last night at the Bonds. I already knew it, but he's not talking about God restoring your physical youth, but your spiritual youth, your spiritual vim and vigor and strength and power and excitement and enthusiasm. That's what he's talking about. Is God able to renew your youthful, remember, remember when you found out baptistry? Remember just how good it felt to be totally clean? It feel good, right? And you knew it. So often after baptism, we kind of go like this. When we should be going like this. And God is able to restore that vim and that vigor and that spiritual, youthful, spiritual strength and excitement. Like when we were newborn babes coming out of there. And, and, and I realized that baptism for the forgiveness of your sins had, had not been implemented as a new covenant when David wrote this. I understand this. But God was still able to take their spiritual strength and, and renew it and refresh them. The Apostle Paul did talk about this himself in the New Testament, just for New Testament passage, how it's not physical, but it's inward. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 through 18, Paul wrote, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So Paul, by divine inspiration, would also back up. It's not about God renewing our physical youth. I mean, none of us are getting any younger. <laughs> but certainly refreshing us and keeping us strong spiritually. David is now going to go on to write what I, for me personally, is the heart and soul of this psalm. He's going to go on <clears throat> to write the reasons behind why God blesses us with all of these things. He's talked about the blessings in the first five verses. But it's not just about God doing it. That's not Psalm 103. Psalm 103 then goes into detail as to why God blesses us with all of these things. And brethren, here's the thing. It has absolutely nothing to do with our own perfection, our own righteousness, 
has nothing to do with our own personally achieved goodness or holiness or worthiness whatsoever. This is the thing. We have got to understand this. God does not do all of these wonderful things for us because we're such good people. It's not why he does it. He does it because he's an awesome God. He does it because of who he is, not because of who we are. Have you ever wrestled or struggled with feelings of unworthiness, with feelings of failure, with feelings I've let the Lord down, I shouldn't have said this, done this, thought this, blah, blah, whatever. Every Christian does. But the thing you've got to understand from Psalm 103, and sometimes despite our best efforts, we still fail. But the thing you've got to understand from Psalm 103 is that God's love for you and his goodness to you is not based on your performance being perfect. Yes, we should do all we can to be righteous. Yes, but it's not based on a perfectly flawless performance. It is based on his love and seeing you as flawless because of his mercy and compassion. That's why. And, and that's the thing we got to understand. Look at, look at verses 8 through 13. I'm getting ahead of myself here. The Lord, notice it's not about us. The Lord is merciful and gracious. It is the Lord who is slow to anger and abounding in mercy. It is the Lord, verse 9, who will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. It is the Lord, verse 10, who has not dealt with us according to our sins. Listen, if it was about dealing with us according to, to, to what's inside of us, we don't have a prayer. We don't have a chance. But God has not dealt with us, verse 10, according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. It's all about his mercy, his goodness, not ours. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. You love your children when they mess up? You do, right? Kids mess up, right? God, as the perfect father, loves us and pities us as his children. If we only love our kids when they're good, we're not always going to love our kids because they're going to make mistakes. If God only loved his children when they were perfect and flawless on their own, and yes, we should strive, don't ever say or think that we shouldn't strive to be all that we can. We should, but we're still going to mess up from time to time. 1 John chapter 1, that's why we have an advocate if we confess our sins. As Christians, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And, and if we say we have no sin, we're a liar and the truth is not in us. That was written to Christians. God doesn't love us because we're perfect. God loves us because he is. And, and, and this, is, this is what I want for us to think about. We've just read verses 8 through 13. What God has done for us. But why? Why has he done that? Why has he not dealt with us according to our sins? Why has he not punished us according to our iniquities? Why has he removed our transgressions as far as the east is from the west? Why is it that he pities us so? Why is that? That's the, that's the question. Why is it? And by the word, by the way, the word, I can say this, by the way, the word, Pities is a Hebrew word, rakim, which means, catch this, to love deeply, have mercy, have compassion, 
have tender affection. When it says that he pities us, that's what it means. So again, 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 the, the question is why? Why does he do those good things for us? Why has he done all that? The answer and the crux of this lesson is in verse 14. And the answer is twofold. For he knows our frame. That's why he remembers that we are dust. That's why. Two reasons, two incredible and infinitely valuable reasons for us to always remember. Two reasons that give us incredible insight into both the goodness of God towards us and therefore the goodness that we should have if we are ever going to truly love one another as God has loved us. The only way we're going to love one another as God has loved us is to see one another as God sees us. Does that make sense? That work? It's good because it's true, so I'm glad that works. And, and here are those two reasons, and I want us to look at them more deeply because if we can get our mind around this, it's going to enable us to love more like God. The, the first reason that God does all those wonderful things that we talked about is because he knows our frame. Now, while he's going on to discuss an aspect of our physical bodies here momentarily, the word that's used for frame here does not seem to be referring to our physical frames at all. It doesn't seem to be referring to our bodies or our forms or our, our physical framework or, or makeup, but to our intellectual framework. Why don't you think about that? What this is telling us is that God knows what we're made of when it comes to how we think. God knows how, he, he knows our frame, he knows what our intellectual weak spots are. He knows why sin is so tempting to us. He understands our intellectual framework. He understands how and why we think and act and speak and react the way we do. He knows what's going on in the mainframe. That's the point. And understanding that, brethren, is why it's critical to our understanding of why he is so merciful and he is so patient and he is so compassionate with us. And it is the only way that we are going to have that kind of mercy and compassion and pity on others is, is if we understand their mainframe. First off, what I want to do is help us understand that that is indeed what the word is talking about. This Hebrew word that is translated here, frame, is yester, like yesterday without the day, yester. According to Strong's, its secondary usage is purpose, imagination, or device slash intellectual framework. Now, again, let me prove that this has to do with the minds. God understands the way our minds work. He understands how weak and flawed and faulty and messed up our minds are. That's what it means. Let me give you some examples. We're not going to turn to all of these, just the second group of three. In Genesis chapter 6 in verse 5, this same word that is translated here in verse 14 as frame is translated intent. 
That is the passage where God's getting ready to destroy the earth by a flood, and he tells Noah that he knows the thoughts and intents of man's heart. The thought intent is that same word, frame, that same Hebrew word. He's talking about the intents of the thoughts. In Genesis 8, in verse 21, it says that God, it talks about the imagination of man's heart. And that word imagination, that's the same word that's used for frame. In Deuteronomy 31, 20 and 21, God is getting ready to bring the Israelites into the promised land. He says, I know that after they get in there, they're going to turn to other gods. After I have blessed them and, and they've grown sleek and fat and they get in there, he said, I know they're going to turn on me. I know they're going to turn on me. Because God says, I know the inclination of their thoughts. That word inclination in Deuteronomy 31, 20 and 21, same word as frame here. God says, I know how their minds how they do this. I, I, I understand the inclination of their thoughts. I'm going to ask you to turn to these last three with me. First Chronicles 28.9, please turn there. I want to show us three other places that this word is used, and there's a couple that are real important that we go to. In First Chronicles chapter 28 and verse 9, David, who used that word frame in Psalm 103 verse 14, uses that same Hebrew word, but it's translated differently in First Chronicles 28.9. It's translated intent, the intent of the thoughts, but it's the same word. David says there in 1 Chronicles 28.9, As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a loyal heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands all the intent, all the frame work of the thoughts. God understands it all. He, he knows how this thing goes. In, in 1 Chronicles 29, very next chapter, look at verses 17 and 18. David says, I know also, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. As for me, in the uprightness of my heart, I have willingly offered all these things, and now with joy I have seen your people who are present here to offer willingly to you. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep this forever in the intent, the framework, of the thoughts of the heart of your people and fix their heart toward you. See, there's an insight here into the word. If you look in verse 18, the same David wrote, uh, the same David said this here in 1 Chronicles as wrote Psalm 103. And, and see, David, by divine inspiration, as you read 1 Chronicles 29, verse 18, as you read that and you see the usage of that word, David, by divine inspiration, knew that their interest would lapse. He knew that it would lapse over time. So what he is saying to God is, imprint this on their hard drives, lock this into their file folders, make it stick on their mainframe. Of course, he didn't know anything about computers. I'm using today's language, but you get the idea. Make sure, he says to God, that you help them to always keep forever this in the framework of the thoughts of their heart, always. Because God knew the frailties and weaknesses of their thought processes. God knew that once the newness wore off, once the joy of the newness of the moment wore off, that these people would slide backwards. They'd fail to appreciate. They would slide backwards in their thoughts and in their intellectual dedication. He knew their frame. God did notice here. God knew the framework of their heart, and yet God still loved them. And finally, the one that I really want for us to understand 
And I just think it's a beautiful passage, and so I'm going to have us turn there. It's in Isaiah 26. I love this text. I don't always enjoy it because I don't always keep my framework where it belongs, but, but this text uses that same word as well. You will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind framed is stayed on you because he trusts in you. My mind is not always where it needs to be. If it was, I would enjoy perfect peace all the time. That's what this tells me. But it's that framework. Number two, from Psalm 103, if you'll go back there with me. Psalm 103 and verse 14. The second thing is that God not only understands our frame intellectual minds and how that all works and how we're, how we, what makes us tick and how we're put together, he remembers that we are but dust. Once David has addressed man's inward, fluctuating, weak intellectual frame, he describes the weaknesses of the outer human shell in which it is encased by calling it dust. God remembers that we are dust. You ever thought about dust? The Bible says that we're, we're dust. You ever thought about what dust is? Dust. God remembers always that we are dust. Dust is insignificant, number one. Dust is not only insignificant, Dust is an irritant. You ever, get a, you ever get dust in your eye and your eyes water? And run? Dust is an irritant. Why do we wear masks when we're sanding things or we're doing drywall? Because the dust is going to get in and it's going to cause an irritation in our lungs. Dust is an irritant. God says, I, I know you're dust. Dust is easily blown to and fro here and there, tossed by the winds of its environment. God says, I know you're dust. And you know, dust Particles are, there's a lot of different ones all floating around together. You know, when sunshine's in through a bright window, you see all those little particles, you know, floating around. All those pieces of dust, or, or a lot of them, are very different, just like we are in the church, very different. I, I looked this up, and I'm glad we're not having fellowship dinner afterward. Uh, I looked this up on Wikipedia about dust. Dust is not only insignificant and irritant, easily blown to and fro by the storms of its environments, it is also independent of one another. This is what Wiki said. Dust is made of fine particles of solid matter. On Earth, it generally consists of particles in the atmosphere that come from various sources, such as soil lifted by wind, volcanic eruptions, and pollution. Dust in our homes is composed of about 20 to 50% dead skin cells. Isn't that awesome? The rest, in offices and other human environments, is composed of small amounts of plant pollen, human hairs, animal fur, textile fibers, paper fibers, minerals from outdoor soil, burnt meteorite particles, and many other materials which may be found in the local environment. Dust particles are all different. They're irritant, they're insignificant. And so to show just how weak and frail and vulnerable we truly are, the word dust is used. God's mindful of that. You know what the Hebrew word for dust translated right here in Psalm 103, verse 14 is? This is what it means, can mean. It can mean dry earth, dust, powder, ashes, earth, ground, rubbish, and debris. That's what it can mean. 
Isn't that attractive? That's what it can mean, that Hebrew word. You see these pictures of Ukraine and all the debris and the rubbish and the blown up and, and all of that. And, and this word for dust can mean all of those sorts of things, that is, pieces of them. God knows we're dust because in Genesis 2 and verse 7, it says, the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Genesis 3.19, God used the word to remind us of our faults and our frailties and our physical weaknesses. God used that word to remind us where we came from and what we're going back to. Where it says again in Genesis 3.19, in the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. David goes on to address this in the next two verses of Psalm 103 and how, how fleeting we are when he says, as for man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes, the wind passes over it and it's gone and its place, and its place remembers it no more. But then David does something that's absolutely beautiful. David goes on to contrast our life and our minuteness and our insignificance and our weakness with the eternal power and majesty of God when he says, but, you know, we've got all these faults and shortcomings and, and we're, we're irritants and all that, but here's the beauty. The mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. That makes me feel real good as a piece of dust. I am so grateful that God's mercy is always there even for me. And that he loves me because of who he is. Not because of who I am in and of myself. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to children's children. To such as keep his covenant to those who remember his commandments. To do them. Here's the main point of the whole lesson. Here's, here's the epitome of this whole lesson. Coming right at you right now. It's the reason I've detailed everything I have tonight. Listen, if God, verse 14, always knows, remembers, and has before him in his mind our weaknesses, our frailties, our weak and frail intellectual framework, that is to say, if he understands how our, our minds work what our thoughts are and how our intentions are formed and carried out, whether good or evil, God understands that. He understands how susceptible we are, even on our best days, to try to, to when we try to still fail. And, and he understands that. He, he remembers that we're dust. He, he knows our framework. And if he knows how weak and insignificant and independent and irritating and aggravating and destructive we can be, both to ourselves as well as to one another, and he does, Psalm 103, then why does God continue to have such mercy and pity and compassion upon us, especially when we are so unnervingly weak and undeserving? Why? Here's the answer. Precisely because he does know exactly what we are. And because he does know exactly what we are, he knows that love, pity, mercy, and compassion is exactly what we need. That's why. 
That's the key. That's the main point of the sermon. And the reason it's so critical for us to understand this is when we begin to look at one another in the same way is the only way we are going to truly learn to love and forgive and have such, midi, uh, such mercy, pity, and compassion for others. The only way we're going to love as God has loved us is when we see others as God sees us all. Every one of your brethren has the same framework, same mind. Doesn't mean we agree on everything, that's not what I'm saying, but, but our minds work about the same. And we're all just dust. We were created from the dust of the earth, we're going back to it. We're, we're all like that. And if God understands, and, and he has this mercy and, and love and pity and compassion for us, because he understands we're not always gonna make the right decision. He understands that we're not always gonna say or do the right thing despite our best efforts. That's why he has mercy on us. Listen, if we always said and did the right things every time, he wouldn't have to have mercy and pity for us because we'd be great. <laughs> the, the point of Psalm 103 is the whole reason he has that is because he does understand. And brethren, when we can understand that our brethren are only human, that they, they think and act and respond out of their own human faults and frailties and weaknesses and shortcomings the same way we do, it's only then that we can truly extend to them the mercy and pity and compassion of God. Sometimes we act like they don't need it. Sometimes we act like our brethren, you know, if they make a mistake, we act like well, they should have known better. Well, when's the last time that any of us made a mistake when we should have known better? We are, the, the framework's the same. And God loves us because he understands that and, and that's the key to our loving one another is understanding that same thing about one another. We do not love, forgive, and have mercy, pity, and compassion on one another because the other person deserves it. We love, forgive, and have mercy, pity, and compassion on another because they need it. That's why. We don't love, forgive, and have mercy, pity, and compassion on one another despite their flaws, but precisely because of their flaws. Because otherwise we wouldn't have to. And so when we do that, when we have that same love, mercy, pity, forgiveness, and compassion on others that God has had on us, what's the outcome? Well, let's look at the outcome of this psalm as we wrap up in the last four verses. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, you his angels who excel in strength, who do his word, heeding the voice of his word, as to the angel. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you ministers of his who do his pleasure. That's people as well who do his pleasure. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. All of the creation cries out that there is a God. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. When God sees us as we truly are and loves us anyway, that makes us love God, doesn't it? Aren't you glad God loves you the way you are? Now, now, God wants you to become better. He wants us all to become better. He wants us all. He's cleansed us, and, and we need to continue that process of becoming better. But listen, listen, aren't you glad that the way a, a parent loves their child, that God still loves you even when you make a mess, despite your best efforts? That, isn't that great? Well, when God does that, what do we do? We bless him, verses 20, 21, and 22. We bless him. We praise him. We appreciate him. We thank him, right? Well... If my 
and I'm speaking for all of us, if my brethren can love me despite my mistakes, that's going to make me appreciate and love and praise them more. Isn't it? Don't you love people who are willing to, to love you despite your flaws? Not, not for any other reason other than they are like God. And, and when, when, again, when God loves us, we, we want to bless him. We want to appreciate him, adore him. We want to work more closely with him. Well, when our brethren do that for us or we do that for our brethren, they want to work more closely. That's what makes this whole thing work. And so I want to encourage you tonight, praise the Lord. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Let us learn from this not to expect more out of our brethren than that they are simply human. Because sometimes, despite their best efforts, they're gonna, and sometimes, despite our best efforts as individuals, we're going to think the wrong thing, say the wrong thing, do the wrong thing. It's going to happen. We don't want it to. We're ashamed of it, but it's going to. We all know this. We understand how this works. It is in those times that we have to know our own frame as well, that we have to know our own mindset, that we have to understand that we are but dust. And God still loves us because he gets that. Hence, we need to love one another because we get that about our brethren. Tonight, if there's anybody here who has never become part of the New Testament family of God by repenting, turning their life totally to God, being baptized for the forgiveness of their sins, or, or maybe you have, and you just need a little more strength when it comes to seeing others in a less critical light or seeing others in, in a way that you understand their framework, that their mind is just as feeble and flawed when it comes to temptation and making mistakes as yours is. If you just need a little strength with that and, and seeing your brethren as God sees them as pitiful people who just need some love and mercy. Amen. We'll pray for you. If there's anything else that we can do to help you, we would be delighted to do so tonight as we stand and as we sing.